Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Back on May 5th, 2015, I hosted a KPFA event featuring Chris Hedges, whose book Wages of Rebellion had just been published. After his speech, I both asked questions myself and took questions from the audience. Five weeks later, Donald Trump announced his candidacy. This is a moment in time that we now, after Trump has left the White House, need to look at again, in light not only of the past four years, but also in the context of the coup attempt on January 6th, something not even Chris Hedges could have predicted would have come so soon. We kind of feel like we're in a Hobson's choice right now coming up, say, on the presidential election. On the one hand, we have, presumably, Hillary Clinton. And on the other hand, we have one of the clown car members. And so the question comes up, given gay rights, given women's rights, given African-American rights insofar as they still exist, what do we do? How do we think about this? Do we ignore it? We have to understand the structures of power and not get mesmerized by these manufactured political personalities. I mean, you have to hand it to Bill Clinton. He has a kind of diabolical brilliance in that he transformed the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. The Democratic Party in Europe would be a far-right party. And he pushed the Republican Party so far to the right it became insane. And yet, on all of the major structural issues, there is complete continuity between Obama and Bush. Obama's assault on civil liberties has been worse. Obama drills like Sarah Palin. Obama murders like all of his predecessors. And this is part of my problem with Sanders, in that he doesn't confront the most dangerous institution in the United States, and that is the military-industrial complex. He also will not stand up for the Palestinian people. And if we are going to build a radical movement, we have to stand with all of the oppressed. And either we stand with all of the oppressed or we stand with none of the oppressed. We can't pick and choose. It's counterintuitive. But I covered Yugoslavia. I saw an ineffectual, self-identified liberal center unable to respond to the needs of the citizenry. And at the moment of economic collapse, which triggered the wars in Yugoslavia through hyperinflation, you saw with the breakdown of society and anger towards this ineffectual liberal class and the vomiting up of the most retrograde figures in Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, Radovan Karadzic, and Franjo Tuzman. And we are no different. This is what happened in Weimar. And if those of us who actually care about progressive, egalitarian, democratic values don't name the system for what it is, then at the time of our own disintegration, I fear that our backlash will be a right-wing backlash. And I have a chapter in the book 
on vigilante violence because white vigilante violence runs through the DNA of this country and has sent slave patrols right up to Clive Bundy. And it's very dangerous. And these are proto-fascist movements that channel a legitimate rage towards the vulnerable, Muslims, undocumented workers, homosexuals, liberals, feminists, and we can no longer lend our support or give credibility to a discredited elite. We must build a political expression like Cereza of movements such as Black Lives Matter or the struggle to raise the minimum wage or the anti-fracking because at some moment it has to unravel and we have to be ready. What is the most important battle that we have to fight today? Is there any specific battle or how do we deal with this? I mean, really. Well, there are innumerable battles. If you live in a marginal community in an inner city, your primary battle is to stop militarized police from murdering with impunity. Live in Denton, Texas, or Pennsylvania, or upstate New York, your primary battle is to stop fracking. But look closely at Denton, because the community organized, it said we don't want our children to drink this toxic water or breathe this toxic air. And the Texas Senate passed a bill banning bans. That's how they will respond. And they will respond not only legally, but physically. And I think all of our energy now, because we have no time left on climate change alone, we have no time to waste. All of our effort now has to go into building movements that destroy one vestige or another of the corporate infrastructure. The American left continues to eat itself. How do we deal with the internal difficulties in the left that seem to stop us from really moving forward in many areas? I think we're watching the rise of very impressive grassroots movements. I mean, we saw the minimum wage passed in Seattle. We've seen it passed incrementally in Los Angeles. I think one of the reasons the Democratic establishment nationally would like to make sure Shama is not reelected is because they fear this contagion. They fear being exposed for who they are. Uh, Anti-fracking movements. I think that there are actually, they don't get reported, but they're there. And they're primarily driven not by people of my generation, but by young activists who've become politically very sophisticated. I was with some Ferguson activists, including a hip-hop artist named T-Dubbo, who after the Ferguson, he's from Ferguson, after the Ferguson unrest was invited to the White House and Obama asked him, did you vote for me? And he said, no, I didn't vote for you because you haven't done anything for black people. And then, but then he said, to vote for you because you're black would be shallow. Now that is an understanding of the misuse of gender and identity politics as a form of anti-politics, which eludes many white liberals. So I'm not too worried. I find my strength and my encouragement and my hope from my students, from 
activists. Cornell and I held a people's hearing of Goldman Sachs and then we marched on Goldman Sachs and blocked the entrance and were arrested. And there's a picture, which I love, of myself and all the Occupy activists walking down the street and I look like this and everybody around me is pierced and tattooed and with Mohawks. And I worship those people. I, my hope is with them. They're great. What do you think of people like John Stewart or, or uh, John Oliver? Can we have revolution through comedy? You know, the Berlin elites tried that, and it didn't work. They ran cabarets in Berlin that made fun of the Nazis night after night after night until they were all closed and they were sent to Dachau. Let's not forget that these people are entertainers. They earn millions of dollars from corporate advertisers. They do so by poking fun at the foibles and excesses of the system, but not describing or attacking the system itself. I worry that they act as a kind of safety valve where we laugh at the kind of yahoos without understanding how dangerous they are. An interesting question. My sense is that the way too many people in the U.S. continue to believe in the fundamental okayness of the system, too committed to their individual comforts to perceive what is at stake and resist. How do you talk to these people who don't yet question the logic of the system? Well, what's fascinating is that when I give talks, I gave one in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The room was full, but I would say a third of the room came from the far right. And I have, of course, tremendous issues with the far right on many levels. But what they could hear was the critique of the corporate state the refusal on my part to defend a bankrupt democratic system or democratic party. As social turmoil begins to become more prevalent, you will see these proto-fascist movements become more dangerous and more violent. That's how it works. The state always turns a blind eye to white vigilante violence because it serves the interests of the power elite. If, imagine if on Clive Bundy's ranch all of those people showing up with weapons had been black. The state would have reacted very differently. And we can't be naive that those forces will be unleashed against us. Because if the state feels threatened, it will use everything in its power. And it now has amassed to itself legally and in physically terrifying mechanisms of control. You can't be all things to all people. You have to denounce evil. And when you stand up and make a moral choice, or when you side with the oppressed, there are huge segments of the society that are going to treat you like the oppressed. Getting back to Bernie Sanders for a second, would you say the rising popularity of Sanders is a sign of positive change, though? No, because he's lending legitimacy to a democratic establishment. And so what happens is he functions as a kind of sheepdog, the way Van Jones functioned in the last election, where he takes positive energy, idealism, and money, and then by April it's over. And he's not going to get on any debate if he does not agree to endorse the candidate who appears to be this monarch-like figure traveling around Iowa, refusing to speak to the press, having filmed discussions with citizens who are prepped and told what questions to ask. 
my problem with Sanders is that he, he lends legitimacy to a party that has no legitimacy in my eyes anymore. In your book, you talk about the black prophetic tradition. Can you talk about how that relates to where we are today? Well, the black prophetic tradition, which is embodied in great figures like Cornel West or Jeremiah Wright and others, is, I would say, the most important intellectual tradition in American life because it understood empire. And it understood empire because African Americans within this country have been internal victims of empire the way Native Americans have been. And that tradition with the rise of Obama is being diminished and it affects not only the political consciousness because blacks in this country have always been the most politically astute group, but it affects us all because it robs us of a narrative that describes for us what empire is. And I spent 20 years on the outer reaches of empire. I know how murderous and violent and venal it is. And one of the things that's so disturbing about coming back after 20 years abroad is watching how all of the mechanisms we use to subjugate people on the outer reaches of empire are being used now within the heart of empire. Drones. I mean, what is the difference between a night raid in Oakland, police in black uniforms with Kevlar vests, with long barrel weapons kicking open a door, terrorizing a family for a nonviolent drug warrant, and a night raid in Fallujah. There is no difference. And one of, one of the reasons I'm so adamant about nonviolence is because I know I have seen the forms or the physical manifestation that violence takes, including the 60,000 members of our special forces read death squads that the state can deploy against us. And the state wants to speak in the language of violence because that's the only language it has left that it can master. And I'm not pretending that it's just or that police are good or none of that, but that our only hope is appealing to at least some segments in the power structure to create paralysis within it. So I gave a talk in Zuccotti where I was calling on activists not to taunt the police, which they generally almost never did. And most of the violence against activists was carried out by the white shirts, the officers, including the pepper spraying of those three women who were kettled that first week. And in the talk, which was on YouTube, I said, now we only have to deal with those white shirts an hour a day. These poor blue uniform cops have to deal with them all day long. And a few months later, I gave a talk in New York, and a man came up to me, and he said, I'm a white shirted, and I read your books. <laughs> now, he might be, the, he's probably the only one, but I'd read King, and I'd failed. I should have never said that at all, because there are people who, for whatever reason, look at Snowden, are within the system, whose consciences we can appeal to through disciplined radical, militant, nonviolent mass movements that take to the streets 
and day after day in a sustained way begin to disrupt the inner workings of power. George Lakoff talks about framing and what he talks about is transferring the idea of the individual, which is the conservative perspective, into the idea of some kind of moral sense of the future of our kids in talking to these people. How do you feel about that? Well, this is what the, you know, the, the consumer society or the corporate state has done quite well, which is instill this cult of the self, this individualism. And there is a constant celebration in popular culture, through positive psychologists, through the Christian right, into this idea that it's all about us. We get preached this in all sorts of forms. Reality is not an impediment to what we desire. If we dig deep enough within ourselves and find our inner strength and grasp that we are truly exceptional, we can have everything we want. <laughs> it's magical thinking, but it elevates the primacy of the self. And I come out of a tradition, a religious tradition, that asks or understands that it's not about us, it's about our neighbor. And that it's not about the primacy of the self, it's about building communal structures that allow us to not only physically sustain ourselves, but spiritually sustain ourselves. And without those communal structures, we will not be able to resist. Please clarify, sometimes you say you're in favor of revolution, other times you describe a goal that sounds a lot like 19th century social democracy or even modern day welfare state capitalism like some Scandinavian countries. Can you explain your position? Are we talking about reform, revolution? Well, we're talking about a radical reconfiguration of how we relate to each other and the environment if we are to survive. We cannot keep consuming at this level. We cannot continue to burn fossil fuels. I mean, if there's anyone left to write the history of our times, they will look back at these wars in the Middle East and wonder how we could have squandered, what are we up to, $7 trillion at a time when the climate was unraveling before our eyes and ensuring our own extinction. And so... I am for the creation of a society which, with a kind of counterintuitive understanding, grasps that strength doesn't come from the exertion of violence and the celebration of hyper-masculine values. Strength in any society comes from, from its ability to care for the most vulnerable, the poor, the mentally ill, the elderly, children. What we have done to children in this country is an unconscionable crime. One in four children every night in America goes to bed hungry. And we are seeing with this reconfiguration of global capitalism, the top 1% controlling as much wealth is the bottom 50%. I was in a lot of combat units in my years as a war correspondent, and those units that did not go back and retrieve their wounded and even their dead disintegrated physically. It's counterintuitive because on a battlefield to go back and retrieve the wounded and even the dead will often create more casualties. 
but the strength or cohesion of a unit was determined by its ability to care not only for each other, but for at that moment those who would become the weakest among them. And we have shredded our society by turning our backs on the vulnerable and the oppressed. And so I seek a society, I'm a socialist, with heavy government intervention and control so that our mentally ill are not sleeping on sidewalks or 25% of whom are in prison. Ralph Nader once said to me, you know, we're not really radicals, we're conservatives, and that we call for the rule of law. The radicals have power. The criminals have power. And they have power that has become utterly unimpeded. You can steal hundreds of millions of dollars from people's retirement accounts, university endowments, city pension funds, and you're asked to sit on the trustee board of UC Berkeley. So it's an utter inversion of value. A couple of questions here talk about third parties, a worker party, just a third party. Should we even be looking in the direction of that part of the electoral process? I think there needs to be a political expression to the radical movements, again, as we saw in Greece, with the understanding that the game is rigged. And so elections are not an end in itself, but that it gives a kind of political face to movements and has as its goal the sustainment and empowerment of movements. If disintegration begins, I think we want to have built something that does that. But that's different than running a third party candidate or running an individual because the primacy has to be the movements themselves. And I've spoken with Shama and we've talked about it Neither of us, she, she's going to sit on the city council and I'm not a politician, but we've thought of doing something perhaps like the Freedom Charter in South Africa because any movement has to be inclusive of people who don't have economic means where we find a farm or something and we write up a socialist platform and we give expression to all of these grassroots movements that are there they're there. They're not reported on, but they're there. You spoke before about the role of art, teaching art and the arts in the uh, prison, and a great deal of your book deals, the beginning of the book deals with Moby Dick. Can you go into the relationship of literature and theater with creating a movement? Any movement is sustained through art. It is as Emma Goldman points out, it is art that allows ideas to be felt. But even more, art, music, literature, theater, or the great paintings of Otto Dix after the war, it reminds us of who we are as human beings. It pays homage to those forces that make us a complete human being, beauty, truth, grief, the struggle with our own mortality, the search for a life of meaning. When I covered the war in El Salvador, every unit traveled with 
musicians and theater groups. Look back on the experience of African Americans, especially under slavery, chants, poetry, work songs, faith. It's what Richard Wright said African Americans had in place of freedom, and yet it is an inner freedom. And I see it with my students in the prison who find or are sustained by those voices that speak to their reality, that endow them with dignity and understanding, because it's finally the human imagination that makes possible resistance itself. It is the capacity to imagine another world, imagine who we should become, and through imagination build the qualities of empathy that allows us to stand in the shoes of another, which challenges, of course, the very cult of the self. All through the wars I covered, I clung to literature like a life raft. When I was taken prisoner in the first Gulf War in Basra by the Iraqi Republican Guard, I had in my pocket the Iliad, Joseph Conrad's The Outcasts of the Islands, and Anthony and Cleopatra. I read all of Proust in Sarajevo during the war. And it was communing with those voices that touched that reality, which is finally love, which lies perhaps even beyond articulation, that kept me sane. And those of us who resist and seek to create a better world and yet also hope to remain spiritually whole must cling to those voices, one of whom, Alice Walker, is in the room, if we're going to survive. I'm curious about your position on how the changes in technology, cell phones, how that affects us, and more importantly, how we can use that to affect change. Technology is useful in terms of conveying immediate forms of information or news or organizing events, but it's a hindrance to thought. I don't have a television, I don't tweet, I don't have a Facebook page, and I don't have a web page. I have 5,000 books in my house, and I live within walking distance of the Princeton University Library on purpose because ideas are transmitted through print, real ideas. You cannot understand capital if you don't read Karl Marx's first volume of Capital. You can't, and it's about 600 pages. You can't understand systems of power if you rely on the images that are disseminated throughout the internet or handheld devices. You have to read Sheldon Wollin. Those of us who are struggling back have to be very wary about electronic systems of information because they corrupt our language and we don't want to speak in the language they give us. Uh, I, I worry that our severance from a print-based culture has created a kind of Huxillian world where we've lost the capacity to think and think deeply at a time when thinking is essential. And thinking, true intellectual activity, is, as Socrates understood, a subversive activity. It's why we see the war against the humanities. 
because it is about challenging and questioning assumptions and structures which they don't want us to do. And so, at least I intend to remain deeply, deeply rooted in, in print as a kind of bulwark against the intrusion of the popular culture in the wider society, which, frankly, I look at as a poison. You've been listening to an interview recorded live with Chris Hedges about his book, Wages of Rebellion, recorded May 5th, 2015, five weeks before Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.